One cold day in the winter of 1918-1919, a riot broke out in Vienna, Austria. Riots happened all of the time that winter. I don't even know what this one was about. Police rushed to the scene. In the fighting, a police horse was killed. In a moment, an instant, women fell upon the horse. The housewives of Vienna rushed to the carcass and, in a bitter race for something to feed their families, hacked and seized every scrap until all that remained were the teeth and the hooves. Within 15 minutes, there was nothing left of that horse. This was life for the losers of World War I, a time of riot, humiliation, and bitter hunger. The people of Austria and Germany were desperate to halt the slide into anarchy. If things didn't change, no one knew what might happen. This is the year that was, 1919. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, your host. Thanks so much for joining me as we look at history one year at a time. The story about the horse is a dark place to start, but this was a dark time in Germany and Austria. Today, we're going to focus on how the winners of the war decided the terms of peace for the losers. You probably learned in school about the treaty that was the result, the Treaty of Versailles. If your education was anything like mine, you were taught it caused World War II. No Treaty of Versailles, no Hitler. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm going to argue that the situation is a lot more complicated than that. What were conditions in Germany and Austria when the peace conference began in 1919? They were shattered. 86% of German men and 78% of Austro-Hungarian men between the ages of 18 and 50 had served in the armed forces. Now 2 million Germans and 1.2 million Austro-Hungarians were dead. Austria-Hungary actually no longer existed. It had collapsed in the last month of the war. Austria and Hungary were now small beleaguered states. Former territories were fighting fierce battles to become independent nations all around them. Germany endured as a unified country, barely, but Kaiser Wilhelm had fled into exile. Riots, mutinies, and strikes swept the land. Worst of all, the people were starving. Britain had blocked the importation of all food and fuel, along with raw materials, guns, and ammunition, into Central Europe for more than four years. The Allies had decided not to lift the blockade until a formal treaty was signed. I started with the story about the horse, and remember, that was in Vienna, which had been one of Europe's most luxurious capitals. Rations in Vienna had dropped below 1,000 calories a day. Every garden, park, and playground in the city had been planted with vegetables, and residents rioted for bread. Doctors reported that 91% of Viennese schoolchildren were malnourished. 
I want to spend a little time talking about the food situation during the war because it illustrates condition in the Central Powers and because it had long-lasting implications. As I said, the immediate cause of food shortages was the British blockade and the lack of internal food resources. Before the war, Germany had imported a large proportion of its grain, and now those imports were cut off. Germany lacked the arable land to feed its own people. However, mismanagement also contributed to the famine, especially in Austria-Hungary. The country had been self-sufficient before the war, but the empire's divided structure now created massive shortages. Austria and Hungary operated autonomously in their own territories and ended up competing for resources rather than sharing them. Hungary produced most of the food for the empire, but it was terrified of running out of supplies for its own people, so it cut shipments to Austria. The Austrians starved. Everywhere so many men were needed at the front that farms were not worked to full capacity. Food production declined just when the countries needed big harvests. Germany and Austria did everything they could think of to feed their people, taking extreme measures that left lasting resentments. They seized food from territories occupied during the war, driving Poles and Ukrainians in German-occupied lands to desperation. They forced prisoners of war into forced labor. They lowered the quality of food available. Wartime bread contained very little wheat, but a lot of lentils, chestnuts, and bran, and not a little sand and sawdust. It still wasn't enough. Conditions were so bad that the cold months of 1916-1917 were known as the turnip winter, since that was what the population survived on. City residents raided the countryside in what was known as the potato war. A black market thrived, driving up crime and generating huge resentment among the poor. One of the worst consequences of hunger was paranoia. Everyone was convinced everyone else had it better. Urban dwellers resented farmers. Office workers were jealous of factory workers. Northern Germans grumbled about Southern Germans. Residents of Hamburg were convinced residents of Berlin received better food. The situation exacerbated ethnic tensions, especially in Austria-Hungary. The empire was a multinational state with more than a dozen ethnicities and languages. Hunger reinforced an us-against-them mentality among Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, Croats, and other minority groups. Those that suffered the most were, inevitably, Jews. Riots and pogroms wrecked Jewish homes and businesses, drove Jews out of communities, and took an unknown number of lives. Ethnic conflicts undermined the Austria-Hungarian Empire and contributed significantly to its collapse. The various nationalities within the empire had long sought increased autonomy, but by the end of the war, they would only be satisfied with complete independence. In late 1918 and early 1919, the empire's hold on the people collapsed, and new countries sprang into being, including Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. They immediately went to war with one another over territory and resources. We're going to talk a lot more about this in a few weeks. As bad as the situation was, officials knew it could be worse. Just to the east, the Russian Revolution was raging. It was as if the house next door was on fire. 
In fact, since the Bolsheviks were determined to export the communist revolution to the entire world, it was as if the house next door was on fire and the people who lived there kept throwing burning sticks into your yard. Activists within Austria and Germany were actively trying to light the revolutionary fire. A Soviet republic was briefly declared in Bavaria, and Bolsheviks staged an uprising in Berlin, but both were quickly crushed. In Hungary, the Bolsheviks succeeded for several months, creating the short-lived Hungarian-Soviet republic. Order held in Germany and Austria, but barely. Over all of this, over the hunger, the fear, the grief, the strikes and riots and pogroms, was a sense of bitter humiliation. It was like a pall of smoke that refused to lift. They had lost the war. It was unthinkable. This feeling was particularly intense in Germany, which had believed itself unstoppable. Germans didn't lose. Germans triumphed. And yet, here they were. One politician later wrote that he could not find words to express my sorrow over the events of November 1918, to describe how shattered I was. I felt the world collapsing, burying under its rubble all that I had lived for and all that my parents had taught me to cherish since I was a child. I talked in the first episode of this podcast about the sense that all of the sacrifices made during the war had to be worth something. That was as true of the Central Powers as of the Allies. So what then had been the purpose of all of their suffering? For what had their sons and husbands died? Why were their children hungry? What was the point? It seemed the answer was nothing. In their anguish, Germans clung to a strange belief that they hadn't really been defeated. Not really, not in battle. Oh, many people understood the truth that the Allies had won, hands down. Politicians and military leaders knew very well that Germany had neither the men nor the equipment to go on fighting. Erich Ludendorff, the German quartermaster general, who had once held more power than the Kaiser, knew the truth. That's why on September 29th, he told the War Council that the German army was at an end. Shortly before the armistice, Ludendorff fled the country wearing a fake beard. He cowered all winter at an isolated estate in Sweden. The soldiers at the front certainly knew they had been defeated. They saw the vast American resources surging into France. Realizing the end was at hand, they deserted in droves and surrendered at the first opportunity. And the people at home knew. I had always understood that censorship kept the truth from the home front. But historians say that's a misconception. Germans and Austrians had been at war for four years. They were perfectly capable of reading through the lines of press reports. But the human mind is capable of enormous self-deception. Defeat was too terrible to endure. So people ignored it, suppressed it, forgot it. They decided they actually hadn't lost the war, at least not in battle. They had been tricked by politicians and been betrayed by internal enemies. German leaders contributed to the national self-deception. Desperate to maintain morale, the president of the new Weimar Republic told the returning troops, No enemy has vanquished you. As the peace conference opened, Germans clung to the one light that seemed to glimmer in the darkness— Woodrow Wilson and his 14 points. Yeah, the 14 points are back. We're not done with them yet. Not by a long shot. 
Last week, we focused on the League of Nations, but that was only one of the 14 points. Another point, and the most important as far as Germany was concerned, was the one that established the principle of self-determination. This is the idea that nations have the right to live in their own state and determine their own future. In simplest terms, people who consider themselves French should be allowed to live in France. People who consider themselves Italian should be allowed to live in Italy, and so forth. Czechs should not be ruled by Austrians or Poles by Russians. The principle seemed straightforward to Wilson. Instead, it created more problems than he could have imagined. We're going to spend several episodes dealing with the unanticipated consequences of self-determination. Right now, what I want to emphasize is that self-determination demands a different kind of peace. After past wars, kings, prime ministers, and ambassadors carved up Europe like a turkey and gave the best bits to the winners. Take, for example, the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. So, we're agreed. France gets the city of Pinarillo and the bishopric of Metz, and to Sweden goes western Pomerania, Wismar, Stettin, and the islands of Rügen and Pearl. Oh, lovely. And England, for applying within 28 days, gets this charming carriage clock. Oh, thank you very much indeed. I'm very kind. All right, well, I think that concludes our treaty. Uh, gentlemen, a toast. Peace in Europe. Peace, Peace in, in Europe. Europe. Okay, that's actually from the British Fry and Laurie comedy show. You're hearing Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Patrick Barlow, Robert Bathurst, and James Dreyfus in a sketch broadcast on BBC One in January 2000. The biggest problem, according to Fry and Laurie, was how to divide up the spoils and make sure no prime little country went unclaimed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, what is it what? now? Why are you interrupting? What? What? Forgive me, Ambassador, but what about Luxembourg? He's right, nobody owns Luxembourg. France, I thought you owned Luxembourg. No, we thought it was Dutch. Sweden? No, we thought it was Belgium. England? Well, we just knew it was on the continent and didn't give a toss, really. <laughs> it looks as if Luxembourg has slipped through our net, doesn't it? Well, we've got a country going up for grabs. Anybody uh, interested? Is it... Negotiations for Luxembourg drag on until a clever suggestion is made. I, I have a proposal. Why not split Luxembourg in two? Sweden can get the east and France the west. Excellent. Yeah, that's, no, that's good. good. And that's good. Good. Sorry, sorry. Oh, Very, what do you sorry. want now? Uh, forgive me, Ambassador, but is it truly wise to divide a land in so wild and ragged a fashion? In future years, there will be Swedish Luxembourgers and French Luxembourgers, Protestant and Catholic, both at each other's throats. Oh, well, I, I, I don't know. I think that'll give journalists of the future something to write about. No, I'm satisfied with this. I think <laughs> this is good. I think... Um... Indeed. I'll put a link to this video on the website. It's comedy, but it's also how things were done for hundreds of years. But under the 14 points, Germany expected not to be carved up like West and East Luxembourg. It was too late for Austria and Hungary. The empire had shattered into pieces. But Germany, at least, expected to remain whole and intact. In fact, it actually hoped to gain Austria, which was, after all, German in language and culture. Austria was all for union with Germany. If self-determination was the order of the day, Austria and Germany intended to determine themselves into a single nation. Furthermore, Germany and Austria expected to be treated with a sort of respect that had not usually been shown to losers. Wilson had been talking for years about the importance of treating all combatants fairly. Way back in January 1917, he had called for peace without victory in Europe. He meant a peace in which the victor didn't punish the vanquished because European history was full of counterexamples and they never ended well. 
Wilson said if an unjust peace was imposed on Germany, quote, it would be accepted in humiliation under duress at an intolerable sacrifice and would leave a sting, a resentment, a bitter memory upon which terms of peace would rest, not permanently, but only as quicksand. So Germany and Austria expected Wilson to moderate the worst impulses of France and Britain, who were sure to demand vengeance. Wilson would ensure Germany remained whole, retained its dignity, and gained Austria. Wilson would save them. No wonder families took down their portraits of the shamed, exiled Kaiser and replaced them with pictures of Wilson. So that's where the central powers were as the peace conference started. What about the Allies? What did they want out of a peace treaty? Well, France's number one goal was for Germany to suffer. Walking through Paris that winter of 1919, it was easy to see why. There was a shell crater where the Tuileries Rose Garden was supposed to be, and a quarter of Frenchmen between 18 and 30 were dead. French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau despised Germany and wanted revenge, but he also wanted to limit Germany's capacity to threaten France in the future. He wanted the German military destroyed and the German arms industry handed over to the Allies. He also wanted Germany to pay heavy reparations. If reparations crushed the German economy, so be it. The longer Germany took to recover, the longer France would have to prepare for the next war. Clemenceau was either the most pessimistic or the most realistic of the Allies, depending on how you look at things. He was convinced Germany would rise again and there would be a future war. Trying to prevent it was folly. All you could do was get ready for it. Great Britain was neither as bloodthirsty nor as fatalistic. The British people agreed that Germany should pay reparations, but British Prime Minister David Lloyd George had hopes for Germany. He wanted to see the country back on its feet with a thriving economy. After all, Germany had been a major British trading partner before the war. Furthermore, Lord George had hopes that if the Allies treated Germany with justice now, any causes for future conflict would be eliminated. As for Wilson, he wasn't quite as agreeable as Germany had hoped. A lot had happened since the Peace Without Victory speech. When Woodrow Wilson declared war, he declared war. He had always favored the Allies, even when he was supposed to be neutral. But once battle began, he gave himself permission to hate Germany. And Wilson, remember, was a good hater. He was convinced Germany started the war with the goal of total world domination and then fought the war in evil, immoral ways. So when it came time to make peace, Wilson was in a bind. How do you make a just and lasting peace based on mutual respect and the principle of self-determination with an enemy you believe to be evil incarnate? Wilson still talked a good game about peace and justice, and he knew deep down that punishing Germany would have terrible long-term consequences, but in his heart, he had no sympathy for the Germans. The peace conference opened on January 18th, the most important decision made in the first few weeks in regards to Austria, Germany, and Hungary was to begin a food relief campaign. There was plenty of food available. The United States had stockpiled supplies in anticipation of several more years of war. This food could easily have been shipped to Central Europe if the French had allowed it. Clemenceau refused to concede anything to Germany, even condensed milk or wheat flour. However, Lloyd George argued reasonably that a hungry populace was more likely to revolt. 
the Russian Revolution was still burning away, and the Allies were well aware that the conflagration could easily spread. The last thing the Allies needed was a full-blown Bolshevik revolution in Germany or Austria. Finally, Clemenceau relented and allowed food to start flowing. The American Relief Administration, created in February 1919, took over the operation and eventually delivered more than 4 million tons of food, clothing, and medical supplies to 32 countries. The relief effort likely prevented Central Europe from complete collapse. Wilson took his trip home to the United States and returned in March, having annoyed pretty much the entire U.S. Senate. Little of substance had been decided while he was away, in part because of a near catastrophe. Clemenceau, the French prime minister, had been shot. On February 19th, as he was leaving his house for a meeting, a man jumped out and fired multiple shots into his car. One bullet hit Clemenceau between the ribs, but thankfully it missed any organs. Doctors decided the bullet was too close to his heart to remove, and he would carry it for the rest of his life. Clemenceau refused to be treated like an invalid and was soon joking about his attempted assassin's marksmanship. He said, We have just won the most terrible war in history, yet here is a Frenchman who misses his target six out of ten times at point-blank range. It turned out that the shooter was a mentally unstable anarchist. Clemenceau objected to the death penalty and the shooter served only a short prison sentence. Within a week, Clemenceau was back at work, but the event left everyone's nerves on edge. When Wilson returned to Paris, he, Clemenceau, and Lloyd George set to work on preparing the treaty with Germany. To the surprise of the Germans, they were not invited to participate. This was an ominous sign. They had believed they would be allowed to negotiate with their former enemies. They thought the 14 points had implied as much. Instead, the Allies informed the Germans that they would be notified when peace terms were ready. Thank you very much. A few things, a very few things, were easy for the Allies to agree upon. Germany would lose all of its colonies. What to do with the colonies was a different matter, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Germany's military was to be severely limited, and its arms industry would be dismantled. About 13% of German territory was given away. Most of that land had long been contested and, under self-determination, was considered to belong to the ethnicities who lived there. For example, the historically French region Alsace-Lorraine, which Germany had seized in 1871, was restored to France. But about 20,000 square miles were given to Poland to promote Polish interest. The Allies agreed that the new Poland needed an outlet to the Baltic Sea to be economically stable. So they took a strip out of Germany and gave it to Poland, despite the fact that this left Germany divided. The German province of East Prussia, with about 325,000 residents, many of them ethnically German, was separated from the rest of Germany by a narrow strip of Polish territory. This may be hard to visualize. I put a map on the website. It's certainly not unheard of for parts of a nation not to be contiguous, see Alaska, but it was geographically awkward and for the Germans would be outrageous. Clemenceau didn't care if the Germans were outraged. He thought the Polish corridor should only be the start and Germany should be whittled down to a shadow of its former self. For example, he wanted the Rhineland taken away from Germany. This is a strip of land that runs along the Rhine River and the border with France. The Rhineland had been occupied by Allied troops at the end of the war. Now Clemenceau proposed the Rhineland become an independent nation, a demilitarized buffer state between France and Germany. 
Wilson dug in his heels. The Rhineland was German. It had always been German. It would remain German, or the 14 points would be a mockery. Clemenceau finally conceded the point. Now, you might well ask, why were the German residents of the Rhineland entitled to the sacred right of self-determination, but the German residents of the Polish corridor were not? You might well ask indeed. You might also ask why the prospect of Austria forming a union with Germany was shot down in flames. Self-determination be damned. None of the Allies were going to let Germany end the war with more territory than it had at the start. Austria would have to survive on its own and could just shut up about its national identity. It was becoming very clear that self-determination was one thing in theory and another in practice. In practice, it only applied to the winners of the war and their selected favorites like Poland and Czechoslovakia. Really, keeping the Rhineland German was a sop to Wilson's conscience. He saw what was happening but was unwilling to stop it. He also wanted Germany to suffer. The single greatest source of conflict among the Allies about the terms of the treaty with Germany was the issue of war reparations. Just to be clear, reparations are payments by the loser of a war to the winner. Clemenceau wanted German reparations to be so heavy and so lasting that the country's economy would be crushed for generations. And on this point, Clemenceau wasn't going to budge. Wilson was furious. He thought heavy reparations were short-sighted. They would only create the sort of resentment that could lead to a future war. And the German economy was in ruins. Would it even be able to pay the billions that the Allies wanted? But Wilson was in an awkward position just then. Remember last week when we talked about the amendments Wilson wanted to the Covenant of the League of Nations to satisfy opposition back home? Well, he asked for them right at this point. Clemenceau and Lloyd George really couldn't have cared less about his amendments. But by asking for something, Wilson weakened his position. Now they could ask him for something. So Clemenceau pressed his point. France, he said, had borne the greatest burden of the war. Why then should France go bankrupt to pay for it? The March 28th meeting of the Big Four broke down in an ugly scene when Clemenceau shouted that President Wilson was pro-German and stormed out of the meeting. But Lloyd George also worried that Clemenceau was going too far. He argued that the German economy was such a mess that no one knew what the country could afford in terms of reparations. He warned that a vindictive peace would empower radical forces in Germany and could drive the country into the arms of revolutionaries and fanatics. Remember, Russia is still burning right on the eastern horizon. And Lloyd George feared the long-term consequences of reparations. He wrote that if Germany felt, quote, she has been unjustly treated in the peace of 1919, she will find means of extracting retribution from her conquerors. Clemenceau thought both Lloyd George and Wilson were deluding themselves. Kindness to Germany wouldn't prevent a future war. The only way to stop Germany was to crush it. One day, Clemenceau thundered at Wilson, You wish to do justice to the Germans. Do not believe that they will ever forgive us. They will only seek the chance for revenge. Nothing will suppress the fury of those who hope to dominate the world and who believe success was so near. Tensions rose to an almost unbearable point, and rumors flew around Paris that the talks were about to collapse. Wilson seriously considered packing up and going home. He arranged to have the American ship ready to sail at a moment's notice. 
And then Wilson took to his bed. The exact cause of his illness is unclear. Press reports said he had a cold. Maybe, or maybe he had a mild stroke, or maybe he had the flu. Spring 1919 was the third round of the Spanish flu pandemic, and the infection was rampant in Paris. It has been suggested that Wilson's illness changed him mentally in some way, made him more willing to compromise. We're going to talk about this more in a few weeks, but the important point right now is that soon after returning to work, Wilson actually caved. He gave Clemenceau almost everything he wanted. Personally, though, I have to wonder, wasn't it also what Wilson wanted? He had put up a good fight and his conscience was clear, but now he could give Germany the sort of punishment he privately believed it deserved. The Allies agreed Germany would have to pay reparations, heavy reparations, and no limit was placed on how long Germany would be liable. Now, Clemenceau had given in on one point. The exact total demanded wasn't included in the treaty. Lloyd George had finally convinced him that no one knew what the German economy could bear. A commission would be appointed to come up with a final total, but it was sure to be painful to Germany. Many in the U.S. delegation were appalled. They felt they had betrayed the principles that had brought them to Paris. We had such high hopes of this adventure, said one delegate. We believed God called us, and now we are doing hell's dirtiest work. They also worried about the long-term consequences of the treaty. How would Germany react? In late April, a telegram was dispatched ordering the German delegation to Paris. They brought with them the faith of the German people that Wilson would treat them fairly. An American diplomat reported on the mood in Berlin, saying, The people had been led to believe that Germany had been unkindly beaten after a fine and clean fight, but that happily President Wilson could be appealed to and would arrange a compromise peace satisfactory to Germany. Instead, the French ordered the trains to slow down as they entered eras devastated by fighting so the Germans could see what they had done to France. When they arrived in Paris, the Germans were loaded onto buses and delivered to a hotel that had been hastily surrounded by a tall stockade guarded night and day by French troops. Their luggage was dumped in the hotel courtyard. They were told they could carry it themselves. If their reception chilled the Germans, what they read in the French papers left them absolutely shaken. Terms of the treaty had leaked, and newspapers were reporting that Germany would have to accept reparations, loss of territory, and guilt for starting the war. On May 7th, the Germans were summoned to a meeting. The leader of the delegation was Germany's new foreign minister, Ulrich von brockdorf Rantzau. And I'm just going to say right here that I am probably mispronouncing this man's name, and I am sorry about that. He came from an old aristocratic family, but he had urged a compromise peace throughout the war. Unfortunately, Brockdorf Ransau made a bad impression on the Allies. He seemed cold, haughty, and stereotypically German. He even wore a monocle. The day of the meeting, Germans entered a room packed with diplomats, journalists, generals, and secretaries, all staring at them with open hostility. Clemenceau spoke coldly. You asked us for peace. We are disposed to grant it to you. Then he asked if anyone wished to speak. 
Brockdorf Ransell raised his hand. He proceeded to give a speech in which he protested the newspaper reports that Germany would have to confess to starting the war. Quote, such a confession in my mouth would be a lie. We deny that Germany and its people were alone guilty. Then he brought up the food blockade and claimed that civilians were dying by thousands as a result. This was true, but the Allies had just gone to a lot of trouble to start sending food to Central Europe and were getting it there as fast as they could. And it simply wasn't smart to start by haranguing the people who held the fate of your nation in their hands. Clemenceau turned a furious red. Lloyd George snapped an ivory paper knife in half. When the Germans departed, Wilson sighed. This is the most tactless speech I have ever heard. When they got back to their hotel and read the treaty, the Germans were horrified. They were astounded they would lose 13% of their territory and 10% of their population, and all of their colonies, and their entire arms industry, and most of their military. Worst of all were the reparations. Germany was supposed to hand over an undetermined fortune for an undetermined period of time. Brockdorf Ransau fumed, this fat volume is quite unnecessary. They could have expressed the whole thing more simply in one clause. Germany ceases to exist. Their shock was genuine. They didn't see it coming. They had placed so much faith in Wilson's ability to sway the Allies that they had ignored all of the signals coming from France, even the signals coming from Wilson. They resented Wilson bitterly as a result. It is incomprehensible, said the president of Germany's National Assembly, that a man who had promised the world a peace of justice upon which a society of nations would be founded has been able to assist in the framing of a project dictated by hate. I've already mentioned the part of the treaty that really raised their hackles, Article 231, which required Germany to accept responsibility for starting the war. This was really a bit of legal language written by a young attorney named John Foster Dulles, who would later serve as Secretary of State under President Dwight Eisenhower. The purpose of Article 231 was to justify the imposition of reparations. That's it. It had been inserted into the treaty almost as an afterthought. But that's not how the Germans read it. They saw the article as requiring Germany to accept guilt for the war. Now, I did a bonus episode on the outbreak of World War I, and if you're curious, you can listen to that and learn about the events that led up to the war and who should be held responsible. In a way, though, the facts no longer mattered. What mattered were the stories that the different sides had told themselves. The Allied narrative placed responsibility on Germany for starting the war. In contrast, the German narrative placed responsibility on France and Russia. Both sides believed they had acted in self-defense. Nothing anyone could do or say in 1919 was going to convince either side they were wrong. Furthermore, Germany viewed the clause as an attempt to humiliate Germany, to impose guilt and demand retribution. That's why they always referred to it as the War Guilt Clause. The Allies could protest until they were blue in the face. The clause had nothing to do with guilt. It didn't matter. The damage was irreparable. The Germans submitted a formal protest to the Allies on May 13th. They claimed that Germany couldn't afford to pay reparations, and they declared they could not accept the hated War Guild Clause. The Allies replied that no reservations or amendments to the treaty would be accepted. Take it or leave it. 
In fact, the Allies were a smidge nervous. They backed their ultimatum with an implied threat of force. If Germany refused to sign the treaty, Allied troops presumably would swoop down, invade Germany, and impose whatever terms they liked. But was that threat real? The Allied armies were demobilizing as fast as they could. The troops wanted to go home. Any delays prompted resentment, even mutiny. The French and British weren't sure what would happen if they ordered their troops to resume the war. They feared a complete breakdown in discipline. American units weren't as exhausted as their European allies, but Wilson was rapidly losing the support of politicians back home. The Senate would have had his head on a platter if he had announced the Doughboys needed to sail back across the Atlantic and march on Berlin. So the Allies realized their power to enforce their will through arms was rapidly fading. They could only cross their fingers and hope the Germans didn't notice. It's not clear, at least it's not clear to me, that Germany knew about the state of the Allied armies, but they were very aware of the weakness of their own troops. German politicians actually consulted with their generals about the possibility of resisting an invasion. The generals said no way. Most German soldiers were already back home with their families and probably would have ignored orders to return to the fight. There was nothing for it but to sign the treaty. That was assuming Germany could find someone to pick up a pen. Brockdorf Ransau resigned rather than sign. No one else wanted anything to do with it. Finally, two government ministers were browbeaten into heading to Versailles. Incidentally, the German ministers were right to be cautious. One of the German politicians who signed the armistice in November 1918, Secretary of State Matthias Erzberger, was assassinated by a right-wing terrorist group in 1921. The signing ceremony was set for June 28th, the anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. It was held in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles. Clemenceau was in charge of arrangements. He ordered the French cavalry to line up along the palace drive, arrayed in blue uniforms and steel helmets, with red and white pennants fluttering from their lances. In the gilded and glittering hall, journalists jostled with diplomats and a large movie crew. This was to be the first treaty signing caught on film. At 3 p.m., Clemenceau ordered, bring in the Germans. The two men entered, deathly pale. They walked to the table and signed the treaty with shaking hands. Before the ink could dry, a signal went out and guns around Versailles boomed. One by one, the Allies added their signatures. Eventually, conversation broke out between the delegates and observers, although the Germans sat in stony-faced silence. Forty-five minutes and it was over. The Germans were let out of the room. They immediately got on a train that would take them home. They returned to a population in outrage. Demonstrations were held across the country protesting the Treaty of Versailles. Germans felt betrayed by the entire world. The treaty soon became known as the Peace of Shame, and those who had agreed to it were hated. The Weimar Republic, which had been established in the last days of the war as the Kaiser ran away, was condemned. In this atmosphere of guilt, resentment, and rage, people looked for some kind of explanation for everything that had gone wrong. Free-floating conspiracy theories soon coalesced into a single narrative. Look, no one wants to lose. Last year, our neighborhood softball team lost its annual 4th of July match against another neighborhood softball team. 
This is a game that has zero consequences. And yet someone on the neighborhood Facebook page concocted an elaborate conspiracy theory about the referee to explain away the loss. So perhaps it's no wonder in a situation so much worse that the two really shouldn't even be compared that the Germans developed their own conspiracy theory. It became known as the stab in the back theory. It basically held that German troops had not been defeated in the field of battle. Instead, German politicians had engineered the defeat back home. They had sabotaged the army's efforts and rushed to negotiate an armistice with the enemy. The theory gained credence when it was adopted by Erich Ludendorff, whom we last saw fleeing into Sweden with a fake beard. When he returned to Germany in late spring 1919, he denied his army had been defeated in battle and seized on the stab in the back theory. Soon it became the semi-official explanation of the German loss. Paul von Hindenburg, Ludendorff's former supervisor, who had commanded the German army between 1916 and 1918, promoted the theory in testimony before the German parliament in the fall of 1919. So why exactly did forces within Germany supposedly sabotage the army? Their motives were variously given as hunger for power, corruption, socialism, communism, and republicanism. But another explanation was also tossed out. They were Jews. In 1919, a German anti-Semitic organization published a book called The Jew in the Army, which claimed that most Jews involved in the war were either profiteers or spies. It accused Jewish officers of fostering a defeatist mentality that led directly to German surrender. Do I really need to say that this is BS? Do I really need to tell you that a military census conducted in 1916 found that Jews had served on the front line in numbers greater than their proportion in the general population? Because the whole thing is just wrong. There's nothing to it. It's just wrong. But there you are. Large portions of the population accepted this theory as fact. Among them was a former World War I corporal named Adolf Hitler, who you knew would show up in this episode eventually. He repeatedly denounced the Treaty of Shame and railed against the November criminals, all Jews or communists, who had engineered Germany's humiliation. That the Jews had stabbed Germany in the back was one of his rationales for the Holocaust. Hitler got a lot of political mileage out of the harsh treatment of Germany in the Treaty of Versailles, and many people around the world actually came to agree with him to some degree on that one point. They were greatly influenced by the blockbuster bestseller of 1919, The Economic Consequences of Peace, by economist John Maynard Keynes. Keynes attended the peace conference as a British delegate, but he was profoundly disturbed by what he saw there. He spent the summer of 1919 condensing his anger into the book. It attacked the Treaty of Versailles on several grounds. First, the treaty violated the basic terms on which Germany had accepted the armistice. Both sides had accepted the 14 points as the basis for peace. But the Allies ran roughshod over its principles of fairness, respect, and self-determination. Second, the treaty ignored the economic future of Europe. The harsh reparations and destruction of German industry would cripple not only Germany, but all of Europe. 
When Kane's book was published in the fall, Germany immediately hailed it as an independent validation of their complaints. But the economic consequences of peace had an even greater impact in the Allied countries. It created a general consensus that reparations were too harsh and the treaty too punitive. In fact, the book was one of the factors that led to the defeat of the League of Nations in the United States. The irreconcilable senators saw it as confirmation of their belief that international agreements were inherently flawed. The consequences of the belief that the Treaty of Versailles was overly harsh would be even more significant in the long term. In the 1930s, the Nazis began pushing back against the provisions of the treaty by restarting their arms industry, building up their military, and halting reparation payments. Many people in allied nations did not resist these aggressive moves since they believed Germany had been unfairly treated in the Treaty of Versailles. In this perspective, Germany was only balancing the scales, claiming what was due. So I was taught in high school that the vindictive Treaty of Versailles led directly to World War II. So did it? Was Germany so wronged that we got another war as a result? Well, a few points bear emphasis. First, Germany fared much better than either Austria or Hungary. Brockdorf Ransau had complained the Treaty of Versailles meant Germany ceased to exist, but Germany survived and as a unified nation. The Austro-Hungarian Empire really had ceased to exist. Furthermore, Austria was made responsible for half of the former empire's war debt and reparations were imposed, although the country could never afford to pay them. Hungary came out even worse. As well as enduring a civil war, the country was invaded repeatedly between late 1918 and 1920. At one point, the Romanians looted the capital of everything of value, including the carpets at the royal palace and the horses in the royal stables. Hungary also faced war debt and reparations. As for territory, if you compare the post-war Republic of Hungary with the pre-war Kingdom of Hungary, the Republic lost 72% of its land and 64% of its population. In comparison, Allied treatment of Germany looks positively generous. What about reparations? Modern investigations by historians and economists show they were never as much of a burden on the German economy as opponents claimed. Post-war Germany had horrific financial problems, but there was a lot more wrong with the German economy than just reparations. But in a way, none of this matters any more than it matters who actually started the war or if the stab in the back theory was true. Many Germans believed it to be true, and that created its own reality. The causes of World War II fall outside the bounds of this podcast, but I think to put all of the blame on the Treaty of Versailles is unjust. A lot happened between 1919 and 1939, including the worst economic depression the modern world has ever seen. The treaty was definitely part of the equation, but it wasn't all of it. For me, what's so strange is that so many people involved in writing the treaty saw the future coming and yet let it happen. You've got Wilson saying that a harsh treaty would leave a sting, a resentment, a bitter memory on which terms of peace would rest, not permanently, but only as upon quicksand. 
You've got Lloyd George warning that if Germany, quote, feels she has been unjustly treated in the peace of 1919, she will find means of extracting retribution from her conquerors. Injustice, arrogance displayed at the hour of triumph will never be forgotten or forgiven. Nor was it. These men knew their actions could, probably would, have devastating consequences, and they didn't let that stop them. We began in Vienna, and that's where we're going to end. A British humanitarian aid worker named Francesca Wilson volunteered for several years in post-war Vienna, and this is how she described the city in her memoirs many years later. The silence struck me. The streets were deserted except for queues of people waiting for rations of wood and sour bread, all of them, women and children as well as men, huddled in old patched army coats, all of them pale, hungry, cold, silent, and waiting. This was defeat. This was how a great empire ends. Not with a bang, not even, it seemed, with a whimper. Nothing here but hunger, cold, and hopelessness. As we consider this season's theme of hope versus despair in a post-war world, we need to remember that hope was reserved for the winners. In the countries that lost the war, all hope was stripped away, and they were left with nothing. And on that happy note, we'll wrap this up. Next week, we're going to change gears a bit and talk about art. Weird art. Wacky art. Dada. I promise it won't be nearly so depressing. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Check out the website, www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for maps, photos, and links. And join us in the Facebook group. I'd really like to know what you think about the question, did the Treaty of Versailles cause World War II? I'm really curious what you think. Thanks again. I'm Elizabeth Lunday. This is the year that was 1919.